we did a song earlier by uh, Matt Papa, and um, he has some great lyrics, and they're all just straight from Scripture. There is another song that he has. It's called, I believe, um, Stay Away From Jesus. Now, that sounds interesting, doesn't it? I'm going to read you those lyrics. You won't ever, And it starts off with this. This is in the song. I kid you not. You won't ever hear this song on Christian radio because the Jesus that I serve is not safe. He'll say, take your cross and die. So if you want a comfy life, stay away from Jesus. He says, narrow is the gate and hard is the way. Hate the ones you love and love the ones you hate. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. But if your works are good enough, stay away from Jesus. Oh, let the children come. Oh, let the prideful run. The Lord, the Lord is His name. He has died the world to save, but to believe is to obey. So come or stay away. He says, be either hot or cold. You can't serve God in gold. Indifference is the road that leads to hell. So if you're happy in your stuff and if 10% is enough, stay away from Jesus. He says, come follow me. Lose your life and be free. You must die to believe like a child. Come and see. He draws every line in love. He is good and He is just. And the words He speaks are meant to set you free. But if you think you are the way and in control, you have to stay, then stay away from Jesus. Uh, That's not going to be on the radio. I think he is absolutely right. He's right because he's biblical. And if some of those things sound very familiar, that's because that's what we have been dealing with for the last few weeks in the book of Mark. Did those sound very familiar? Uh, That kind of sums up uh, this gospel, doesn't it? Jesus had a call to discipleship. The call is not easy, it's not comfortable. Narrow is the way. Forget yourself. Take up the cross. Follow me. Die daily. So Jesus has been teaching this cost of discipleship for all the disciples. He wants them to get this in the last few weeks. But it's for all who will hear. And also, you have to think that those people really need to hear because this is a very, very serious matter. Matter of fact, it is the most serious matter than one can be dealing with because it's concerning eternity. The rest of what God has planned for His creatures, His people. So, the question is, is who really wants to follow Him? Who really, really wants to follow Him in doing what He commands, right? In His grace. Well, we looked at the story of the rich young ruler. That's our context last week. He seemed like the perfect candidate for one, to be a disciple of Christ. I mean, if anybody is perfect, it's this young man. He has everything together. And he has all the money to back it up. He's the right person. He goes to the right person and asks the right question. And you're thinking, he's right on, isn't he? Well, that's what he thought, except he was lacking something. And when he found out what it took, when Jesus gave him the answer, he realized he couldn't do it. He couldn't. He wouldn't. He couldn't give up what Christ was saying that he needed to give up. He was breaking all the commands, but he broke that tenth commandment. And that uh, is wanting things. And it meant that he would have to give up his wealth and his comfort. To follow Christ, he would have to give that up. It took the world, the riches that he had in this world, and to set it aside and to follow Christ. And that's how you get eternal life. And what happened to that young man? Well, it said at the very last verse that we were at last week in Mark 22, it said he was saddened and he went away grieving because he realized he was not going to give up what he had. Couldn't do it. That's where we left off. And what Jesus is going to do with that now is going to illustrate how hard it is to get into the kingdom of God. 
Let's read that text. Why don't we all stand in honor of God's Word, pick up our precious Bible, the Word of God, and uh, turn to Mark 10, if you will. And we're going to start at verse 23 and go through 31. And Jesus, looking around, said to His disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Disciples were amazed at His words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to Him, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, With people, it is impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to Him, Behold, we have left everything and followed You. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Father, thank You for Your Word, Your truth, this Gospel. As Jesus teaches us more things about what the Kingdom is. You are the Kingdom. You are the light. You are the life. And thank the Lord that it doesn't require us to be able to meet the perfect demands of the law. But it's all the work of God and that we just trust in You and be obedient. Thank you for your word. May your spirit guide us into what your truth is here today, personally, that each one of us would gain more knowledge of you. Son's name, amen. Amen. Well, another difficult saying. This is a hard saying because Jesus uses the word hard, doesn't he? Hard. It's hard to enter the kingdom. Well, in essence, really, this portion, this passage here is about the impossibility of salvation. It's impossible. That's what we have at the first part there. That's what Jesus brings forth. Well, if you said that, it sounds kind of scary. It's impossible. Um, You go, well, how do we get there? That's the question of the ages, isn't it? Isn't that what it's all about? That's what it's all about. And, uh, of course, Christ is the one who had that answer. And, of course, He is the way. He is the truth. So, Jesus is going to say that it's going to be hard Matter of fact, he's going to come along and clarify that and say it is impossible for the wealthy and anyone to enter the kingdom of God. That's a startling statement. We uh, look in verse 23. Jesus looking around. Now, he's in Perea. That's on the other side of the Jordan. He's still there. There's still crowds around. Disciples are there. He's really wanting to hone in on these, uh, these teachings that the disciples need. But there are other people around too. There are crowds around. And as he's looking around, I have to think that he, as he sees some people, as he's looking around, he might kind of focus in on some of those people. Right? Him being Jesus and him being God. Some of those people needed to hear specifically what he's saying. So he might have just kind of went eye to eye with them just for a quick moment. Just a glance. And a person might have grabbed, he's talking to me. You ever had the Word of God read to you and you go, how did He know that? How does God know that, right? Anyway, um, this is an eye-popping statement. As He's looking around, uh, the disciples are hearing this, and He says, it's hard. And then He says, it's going to be uh, impossible. And I'm certain that would get one's attention, wouldn't it? Here is the one who is offering eternal life. He is eternal life. And he's saying now that it's impossible. And you say, well, how can that be? (laughs) That doesn't make sense, right? Well, he just comes off of the meeting with the young man who had just left. And immediately, then Jesus turns around to all the people, disciples especially, and he starts describing this. And he says, okay, now that I've got your attention... Now that this young man has got our attention, let's go into the deep truths of the Gospel. 
quite startling. And this man came to Jesus thinking that he'd kept the law, thinking that he was righteous before God, that uh, if anybody is perfect, it's him. And he would have been. But Jesus uses the law on him and exposes his self-righteousness. And he might say, I don't see any self-righteousness here. Oh, yes. Before a holy God, he comes up to him and he says, I've kept all your all the commands. It's got to be something else. <laughs> that is self-righteousness to the T. He did not love God. He did not love God's law. His holy law. Even though he thought he did. Because he loved his possessions. He coveted. And he wanted things more importantly than, than God. The law did its job, didn't it? It does it to everyone. Everyone who is in the possession of God has had the law laid them, laid to them and they realize that they are empty without Him, right? All the self-righteousness is laid out on the floor and strewn out. And we are killed by the law, Paul said. He failed to understand the depth of the law. And that's the whole problem of all of the Jews, the Pharisees, and all the people in Israel as Jesus came. And then that great Sermon on the Mount explains what that law is about. And He shows that it's inward. And He shows that nobody can keep it, right? Wow. Jesus confronts him and said, let's find out how you worship. That's really what it comes down to. How do we worship God? Who do we worship, right? He says, okay, I want you to sell everything. I want you to give it to the poor. And I want you to come follow me. I want you to put me at the top. So he goes, to the extreme, Jesus does, to get the point to this man and to show that he broke the second half of the commands because that's what Jesus really gave to him. And that's the second table of the law. We talked about that last week. That is dealing with others. The first table of the law is dealing with God. Having no other gods before Him. He is the only God. We are to love Him with heart, mind, soul, and strength with every ounce of who we are. And uh, so therefore, He was a breaker of that. He was a blasphemer even though as good as He looked. And actually, it's like Jesus is saying, if you want anything else more than God, you will lose everything. You're going to lose it all. Everything. Now, if this man couldn't enter the kingdom, who could? <laughs> That's what the disciples are hearing. They're going, wow, he has been teaching some really hard stuff lately. Matter of fact, you might think lately, man, Dennis has really been hitting it really hard lately. Well, it's not me necessarily. Jesus is saying these things. And I'm sure they came out much harder than the way that I'm putting them. Uh, but if you yeah, have the Holy Spirit guiding you in here, go, wow, this, this is difficult stuff. If he brought this before a, an unbeliever, it might offend him. <laughs> Matter of fact, it can even offend believers, can it? Jesus says here that it's hard for the wealthy. In fact, most who are going to have eternal life, and you might like this, are not going to be the rich. It's going to be the people who are the least likely. And that's how God does it. They say, well, what are you talking about? Well, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is a verse we've gone through many times. But I find it very comforting. Matter of fact, I find something here that I can really relate to. For consider, think about this. If you had the great Apostle Paul speaking to you personally, and he said, I want you to think about it. Would you be thinking? Consider this. Consider your calling. The calling that God made you. That calling that was real. Brethren, there, there were not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble. Well, I can't really identify with the noble. I can't really identify with the mighty. I really can't identify with the wise. <laughs> but God, and, and I like that, those two words, and you see them in Ephesians chapter 2. 
after he shows the depravity of man. And then we see, but God. In Ephesians 2, it says, being rich in His mercy. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the worldly wise man. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong according to the world and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. Boy, that word is all over the place, isn't it? Called and chosen. The things that are not so that He may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. That's the reason He does it. There isn't anybody who can come say, yeah, but... I had a little bit more than the others and uh, he chose me because I was a little bit better. You know? Had a little more money, a little more prestige. Oh, that guy is not going to go anywhere. And then, of course, he became to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And then he says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the only thing we have to boast about. There is nothing there that we can boast about. Nothing about our goodness. The rich young ruler was doing exactly that. And so really, he really comes to the ones who are actually poor. Um, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes. Very first one. Poor in spirit. Actually, he's talking about they're the ones who are spiritually bankrupt. But most of the people that he went to were people who were not people of influence. They were the lowly people of society. The fishermen, the tax collectors, and others followed him. Sinners that he converted. Startling statement he does make, but it is true, isn't it? He really doesn't have a whole lot of wealthy people in his kingdom. He said, that doesn't sound quite fair. Why is it hard for the rich? And we'll just come up with some just thoughts that I think anybody could agree with. Why would that be hard? And then we'll, we'll further explain that because we know it's impossible for anybody. But uh, the rich, they live with a false sense of security. They have everything. Independently wealthy. I've heard people use that phrase. That means they can get anything they want. They're set for life. They have it made. And so they're relying, they're confident in this, they're very confident in what they have because if they lose uh, uh, some bucks or they invested not too good in a spot, they've got other things to always draw from. There are always things that they can draw from. Uh, In that false sense of security, they tend to be conceited. They may not try to show it outwardly, they might try to be very friendly, but to people who really don't matter to them, have you have you talked to people that way? Do they seem quite conceited over you? They're a little bit better. Uh, they fix their hope in uncertain riches. In First Timothy six seventeen, the rich there are warned about not counting on their riches. And he's talking about believers there. It's not that one cannot be rich and be in the kingdom of God. We're not saying that at all. Because if you look in the Bible, you'll see several rich people. You can think of Abraham. You can think of David. Think of Solomon. You know, you look all through the Old Testament, even the New Testament. Yeah, there are very rich people in there. But for the most part, compared to percentage-wise, they're really not. But First uh, Timothy 6.17. Paul writes to Timothy, a uh, young pastor, and he's to, remind, he's to be reminded to remind the very rich people this. Instruct those who are rich in this present world, the physical things, not to be conceited. What does that mean? They have a tendency to what? Be conceited. And what are they to do? To fix their hope on the uh, their uncertainty of riches. They're not to fix their hope on that, right? But on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And really, you know, if you want to look at what rich really is, we are. In Christ, we have everything. Everything we need. We're rich. And if you want to compare it to the rest of the world and you want to get on the physical level, uh, actually, we are the rich 
if we were to compare just to biblical times, look what we have. We have running water in our homes. Now think of that. We have microwaves to make things a lot faster. And we have processed foods and we have pantries and and we can grab anything off the shelves that we want. And then we have... Uh, we go into the clothes closet and we have just oodles of clothes we can choose from rather than maybe a couple of sets of clothes. And should I go on? Uh, we, we really, we haven't really made compared to them. They live from day to day. Most of them. And if you look at the rest of society, in our times, we are very rich and you, you look at some of the, of course, the third world countries, but most of the rest of the world. We are way above probably 90 or maybe more percent of the people in the world of things we have, just physical things. Now, that puts it on another edge. We are the rich, aren't we? It depends on what you compare it with. There are people that have some nice mansions. Oh, that'd be nice to have. And they have some really nice, brand new cars that they drive around, and that's pretty nice. Not necessarily bad, Right? But the thing is, we're rich. I think we could probably go along with this rich young ruler in some ways, right? And so this um, command here that Christ gives is is to everybody at any time, really. Um, so that's one thing, a false sense of security. Do you remember what uh, Jesus said? Whoever wishes to save his life, he'll lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. You remember that when we were in Mark chapter 8, verse 35? What does it profit to man again the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? And that's what the rich young ruler dealt with. He could have had a new soul. He forfeited his eternal soul for what? earthly riches. So that's one thing. False security. That's what he had. Secondly, we say about the rich that they tend to be bound to this world. Like they're tied to this world. They're consumed with uh, the earthly businesses, uh, the earthly enterprises. And Jesus has all addressed that. Where your treasure is, there is where your heart is will be also. So he gets to the inner part. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. We were there earlier there in 1 Timothy 6. In verse 10, there's an, another address that Timothy is to deal with, with some of the people uh, in the church there. Was that at Ephesus where he was at at the time, pastoring? Quite a wealthy place. Some Christians in it. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's not the money. It's what? The love of money. That's the whole point. So you can't go around saying, well, see, Dennis says it's it's a sin to, to have money and have a lot of things. Didn't say that. The love money is the root to wanting to have things so that can appeal to the rich person or the poor person can it gets everybody there really the love of money but it will make people wander away they're bound to this world in Luke 12 there's a story of the man who had all the barns and had everything and he kept growing and growing in all of his enterprise and his business and he tore them down and built bigger barns right I mean it just got bigger and bigger and then his soul was demanded from him that very night. Sad story. There are people like this rich young ruler or this man here building the bigger barns. But you know what? As we turn back to Mark, after all that said, that's not really my main point today. <laughs> well, I thought we were going to talk about riches and, and the poor, and, and and I can feel good about that because I'm not I'm not poor, or, but I'm not rich. I just want to be in between like that guy in the Proverbs. Remember that one? What's the main point? Well, disciples have a response here. They want to know what the point is here. You want to know what the point is? 
The disciples were amazed at His words. Now, we haven't seen that before, have we? Everybody's always amazed every time He opens up and speaks, Jesus. But Jesus answered again, well, here, here, here's their thinking. Let's go back. Let's go back to the mind of the, the uh, disciples. Remember, if you put yourself into their place, because they're human, they're people like us, we identify with them. Let's identify here. Look, Jesus says, it's really hard for rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we know that because we've been through these passages before and we know about that. But if you start thinking the way they do, this is counterculture. This hits right at the grain of what their culture, their, their religion is all about. They don't get it. Really, they're not getting this, what Jesus is saying. You think, oh, anybody could get that if you're a Christian. Yeah, we, we know the, the meaning of this. Yeah, most rich people aren't going to go into heaven and most, most poor people will. No. <laughs> this is so shocking. Because they have a theology all built in their minds. And he comes in there and starts ripping it apart. The theology says this, and this is what the rabbis taught, the Pharisees taught, Sadducees taught. It's what everybody taught in Judaism. That if you're rich, you're blessed by God. It's called the Jewish health wealth gospel. And I don't have to say a thing because this is the same thing that's being spoken of today. It's all through the airwaves. And it is totally foreign to what Scripture talks about. If you are rich, that means you are blessed by God and you have eternal life. That's really what they thought. And if you're poor, you are what? You're cursed. That's right. You're cursed. What? That, that doesn't sound like God at all. His ways. Remember, this kind of religion that had been built up here, that's a health wealth gospel. If you're blessed by God, if you're healthy, you're blessed by God. If you're sick, then you've not been godly. God is cursing you. If you're very wealthy, it's going to be easy to enter into the kingdom of God. Are you catching that? Most rich people. Rich people are going to go to heaven. They have eternal life. That's what they're thinking. Why? Because the more money you have, the more animal sacrifices that you can be playing into. You can get an animal and take it to the morning sacrifice. By the way, the best of animals, because it's not supposed to have any spots, right? And then you can go buy another animal and take him into the evening sacrifice. Oh man, points. Points are really going up. And the more money you have, the more sacrifices you can buy. That's what they did. And they brought good sacrifices in there. Not from the heart, though. So, if you're blessed, you have money. If you're blessed, it means that God is pleased with you. Man, that's further from the truth of the gospel. Just because somebody has something doesn't mean they're going to heaven. So they had spiritual confidence. They went right on up the ladder, right? That Jacob's ladder. That's, that's dealing with works and, and things. You know, rabbis said this. Now catch this. This is some of their thinking, and this is what they wrote, this is some of the things they said. Rabbi said that with alms, that's what you gave to the poor and to the temple tax and everything. But with your alms, you purchase your redemption. Whoa. That's not in the Old Testament. But that's what the rabbis taught. Remember, they were teaching a lot of things that weren't in Scripture when Jesus came around. And he says, Thus saith the Lord. Here's what you understand. You shall love the people you like to love, but to hate your enemy. And he says, but here's what I say. Love your enemies. <laughs> wow. Well, some of the writings are really interesting. You want to hear a few? One writing uh, taken from Tobit says this. It is good to do alms rather than treasure up gold for alms deliver from death for, for alms deliver us from death and this will purge away every guilt. Martin Luther had to address that situation. 
And that's what the tacking of the theses were on that Wittenberg door. Because people were buying their eternal life. And he said, oh, this is wrong. That still goes on today. Okay, that's Judaism. If you want your sins washed away, give money. Are you catching it? Syriac 3 says, alms will atone for sin. This is how bad it had gotten, folks. This is in the teachings and the writings of Judaism. In the Talmud, alms giving is more excellent than all offerings and is equal to the whole law. I mean, you've done the law when you've given your alms. You've virtually kept the whole law. The rabbis, that's what they taught too. We see the Tobit, Syriac 3, the Talmud. The rabbis would agree with this young man. I don't know if they would agree about him lacking something. They thought they had it all together. But you're rich. God has blessed you. And the more that you have, the more blessed you'll be giving. And the more that you give, the more that God will just keep on doubling it up. And the more that you have, it'll just keep escalating. And the more you give, the higher that you will have in the eternal kingdom. I think this is a really important lesson Jesus is teaching here. It's, he's saying it's hard to be saved. And you know, in modern evangelicalism, the kind that I grew up with, and the kind that's going around today, it's really easy. You just simply pray a prayer. It's done. You just simply sign a card. You just simply get baptized. Right? Say a few words, cast it out there, and boom, you're saved. Well, sounds like I'm teaching a um, justification by works here today, isn't it? But that's further from the truth. Matter of fact, we're getting to the whole point. <laughs> uh, that's the other end of the extreme spectrum. How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God, period. Not just for the rich. It's just hard to enter the kingdom of God. If the rich can't do it in their system, then what about us? That's what the disciples are thinking. That's the reason I went into that long little discourse about the almsgiving and the way that the Jews thought. Do you think the disciples thought that way? Oh, yeah. That's their theology. The health, wealth, gospel. Jesus had to break that. Verse 24, as we see disciples are amazed at His words, Jesus answered again said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. He, this time He doesn't say what? How hard it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. He, he just says this. How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. He's addressed that rich man. Now it's like he puts it out here. It's really hard. It's really hard. It's hard to be saved. It's not that easy. But yet we can't do anything. How do you put those together? It's hard to enter the kingdom and yet there's nothing that we have to offer. What do I do? What do I do? And Jesus uses this illustration. And they would have been familiar with it. Everybody knows this. People outside of Christianity know this. Everybody's heard this statement. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. With the context, with the point being brought up here, he uses a common expression that's used even outside the Bible. People would have known this. And it was used in the Talmud, the Jewish writings. And they said almost the same thing. It's an expression. They used an elephant for instance. It's easier for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle. Now, Jesus said camel. But they're, they're saying in, in the Talmud, really what they're saying is that 
That means something can't happen. I'm not necessarily talking about what Jesus is talking about here, but that whenever they would use that expression, it's easier for an elephant to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It can't be done, right? It just it just is impossible. So that they knew that. Uh, the largest animal in the Middle East, you'd think, would be an elephant. Well, in Israel, then actually, really what you have to think about, what's another big animal? Well, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, a camel, that, that's pretty big, you know, with the humps and everything. Matter of fact, you could even say a rabbit if you wanted to. That would be ridiculous to try to put a rabbit through there, you know. Keep going down, you know. Uh, you know, that's awful small. He goes to a biggest extent, uses an extreme here to show that it's, it's impossible. This fits the experience. That's really simply what he's saying. It is, it's not only hard, it's impossible. You guys understand that? It's not just hard. It can't be done. It can't be done. Uses the illustration. And he uses that rich man again there. Boy. Then you understand why verse 26 comes up. They were even more astonished. They've already been amazed. Now they're more astonished. I mean, they're beside themselves. And you would be too. He's just said something that just sounds ridiculous. Why is he offering eternal life and now he's saying it's impossible? I mean, for a moment there, wouldn't you be thinking, oh wow, is he saying now that he's going to die and then this is it and then we're just going to be hanging out here? I said to him, well, then who can be saved? If the rich guy can't be saved and he left and then other rich people can't be saved and are you saying nobody can be saved? Who can be saved? They can't. That's what they're thinking. If the rich can't, nobody can. And they're still hanging on to the vestiges of their old religion. <laughs> That's absolutely worthless. Invented by men, added to the Word of God. They're hanging on. They're dragging that baggage. It's like Pilgrim's Progress, right? He's got that back pack on him. Weighted down. Aren't you glad when that pack falls off at the cross? <sighs> Who can be saved? And this is the point that Jesus wanted to get to. He looked at them. And you can imagine. Probably looked at each disciple. Caught them eye to eye. Or as He looks, they, they know. They're just waiting for this answer, right? I mean, wouldn't you be? Hey, listen, folks. Oop, it's out of time. We got to shut down for the day. No. <laughs> okay, let's go on. Right. We could just leave it hanging there, right? And have a commercial. Looking at them, Jesus said, "With people, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God." says it. With people, it's impossible. He says it again. We've been talking about that. Let's go back to Jeremiah. and we, We've been looking at what the rabbis and the Pharisees and all the teachers in Israel taught. But what did the Bible say? You like that? What does the Bible say about that? And not the New Testament because they didn't have the New Testament at that time. So what really should have they believed? Well, there are a lot of Scriptures and we don't have the time to go through all of them, but Jeremiah 13.23 is a good place to look at. Yeah, you've heard this one before. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? I mean, that's a good illustration. Well, of course not. Then, you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. The main point is, you know, you are what you are. You, you can't change. Here's your nature you're born with. The Ethiopian, that's his nature. He can't change his skin. That's what he is. That's what he's about. He can't change it. He can't, no matter how much he'd like to, he can't do it. The leopard has spots. That's his nature. That's part of who he is. Can he change them? No. Can't do that. So, Compare that to a sinner and he's stuck.
stuck in an impossible situation. He can't save himself. You know, he can't save himself anymore that you can take a some kind of a, a, a stuffed camel. Let's just take a stuffed camel like this, you know, and try to stuff him through a needle. <laughs> Still can't even take a stuffed camel and punch him through there. So the sinner, by his own power and his own will and his own money and all the religion and all the morality that he has, like this young man, cannot save himself. He can't enter the kingdom. He can't inherit eternal life. And then Jesus says, all things are possible with God. Sounds like he's contradicting himself, but he's saying, man can't do it. He can't do anything. can't even add. You think of John 3. You think of Nicodemus. What must I do to be born again? What do I do to get into the kingdom? That's the same thought. That's the whole same idea. So there were, there were people that were of the law that had that question. Here's one right here. Jesus said, well, you need to be born again. Which means not of the flesh. We're talking about born from above. Born from God. That's, that's the idea. A nothing. You need to be born of the Spirit. You were born physically, naturally. But you have to be born spiritually. That is the essence of this anathan, born again. Only God can work this work of regeneration, can't He? It's a divine miracle. It's possible with God. He just says it right here. With God, all things are possible. All things. That's a great promise. Look in John 1.13. The great prologue of John, John 1 there. John 1, 13. Uh, that verse 11 is a good place. He came to His own. Those were His own did not receive Him. But as many as did receive Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in His name. You can say, well, they're the ones who received Him. Yes, absolutely. Who are the ones who receive Him? They're the ones who were born, not of blood, not because they were born Jewish, nor of the will of the flesh, because, hey, I have free will. This is my flesh. Or of the will of man. You're not born because of your free will. And you can choose God your own will, but you're born of God. If it's your own will, your own flesh, what is it? Jesus has already said, it is impossible. So the ones who receive Him are the ones He gave the right. He gave the power. He regenerated them. And that's what He's saying in John 3. That's regeneration. Born from above. And now they have the faith to believe in Him. That's how salvation works. It's of God. Oh boy. Disciples have a lot of questions, I'm sure. Look in Luke 18.13. Remember this? Pharisee, tax collector. They're at the temple praying. Tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's who God wants. We realize we have nothing. Be merciful to me, because you have every right to throw me into the lake of fire for eternity. And you have every right to do that and I know that please I beg of you mercy that's, that's what he wants us to do he wants us to cry out to him the first time he be gracious and merciful and save us it's God's business to save does that doesn't he and you know what the doctrine of election and predestination is the most comforting doctrine that I know of and now we're going to shift this to evangelism. You want to know why? Because 
there was a guy by the name of John Alexander. He says, if predestination is true, I'll never become a missionary. Why should I? Because God's going to choose them anyway. He's going to do that. You know what? There's no use to do it. Well, as for he was a believer in that. Makes sense, doesn't it? God's going to do it then. <laughs> well, why do we evangelize? Then, years later, out in the field, he said, if predestination is not true, I could never be a missionary. That gives me great comfort because God is going to save who He's going to save. He uses us. We are to be obedient in His call to take that gospel to the lost and say, well, I don't know who they are. You don't need to know. There are people out there that are needing that gospel. But you don't know who they are. Charles Spurgeon always said, you can't peel back the flesh and see the E on there. God raises the dead, the spiritually dead. Who but God can do that? Look in Acts sixteen fourteen. Sixteen fourteen. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics. She was a worshiper of God. She wasn't a Christian yet. She had some truths, but she wasn't there yet. You know, that's the way uh, most of us were. We had bits and pieces here and there, and then Christ brought us to Him. And here's what happened. She was listening. Paul's preaching. What a guy to be preaching. I bet he preached the Gospel truly, didn't? don't you think? And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. He just reached in there and opened her heart up. That's the way it happens. That's the way it works. You know what? It's unconditional. It's irresistible. And I think that's a great incentive for us as Christians. When we go and bring the Gospel to people, when we take them to people that have the Islam faith, we have every confidence that God is the one who is going to bring people to Him. And no matter how much I might mess up, I might just stumble all over the place and bringing forth the Gospel here and say wrong things. But you know what? If your heart is right, no matter what you say, God will take that and bless that. Because if that person is to be saved, you know, some water, some plant, some water, but God is the one who gives growth. He's the one that does it, right? You can you can feel real confident and have quite an incentive when you approach a Hindu or a Buddhist. I'm sure you guys run into those guys all the time, don't you? <laughs> Around here, probably not. They are out there. They do worship here. I can't say worship in, in the wrong way, but uh, here in, in town. Um, any other kind of culture, cults, even atheists. That's the biggest thing here in, in our country now, atheism. Yeah, or anybody who has different uh, views on whether it be sexuality, what have you. You know, we have an opportunity to, to share the gospel. When Paul entered a city on his missionary journey, we're all missionaries. So when I say missionary, I'm not talking about the guys who just go to Africa. Okay, we have been given a mission, a, a commission. It's called the Great Commission in, in Matthew 28. Go ye therefore. Making disciples, right? Wherever you go, as you go about, look for opportunities to present the gospel. I mean, that's really one of the big reasons why we're here. God uses that, believe it or not. He said, why would He use me? That's what He wants to do. Look in Acts 18. The Lord's speaking to Paul in a vision here. Acts 18, verse 9 and 10. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer. What does that mean? The great apostle was what? <laughs> I can identify with this. 
He was afraid. He was afraid. He had the Holy Spirit. Man, I mean, he was the walking Word of God, you know? He was inspired by God to write epistles. <laughs> and he says, don't be afraid anymore. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. And I like this. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. Uh, our men's meeting we had the other night, I think a week ago or so, a couple of weeks. That's well, I think Bob brought that up. I go, oh, I'm going to use that somewhere. I just now used it because I forgot about this. Isn't that great? He says, hey, listen, don't be afraid. Everything's cool. You have the Holy Spirit, okay? I'm with you. I want to tell you, I have many people in this city. These are the people who are going to become saved. So when you go out and take the Gospel, I'm going to save some of them. You know, all that does to me is give me super great confidence because I can't fail. No matter how much I might stumble. I might mess up. I might say something offensive to them and I'm not trying to be offensive. He settled there a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. <laughs> that is great confidence. That was Paul. That puts him back on the level of being a human being, doesn't it? He was an apostle, but he was afraid too. But not after that. He preached. I have many people in the city. You know what I like? Acts 13.48. We'd be amiss if we didn't bring this one up. Oh, this is at Antioch. Did you know that Antioch, I think, is the first place uh, the church was called Christians? Isn't that right? Is that right, Dwayne? Right? Gives the gospel here. Bringing out the gospel on the Sabbath. There's crowds there. Verse 48. you got Gentiles. When the Gentiles heard this. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. These guys were unbelievers. And all of a sudden, look, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life <laughs> believed. The ones who had been appointed to eternal life before the foundation of the world. The ones who were the elect, the chosen. I used that unabashedly. Or abashedly. <laughs> Unashamed. Isn't this great? The ones who had been chosen by God long before now hear the Word of God and they believe. He regenerates them. The Word of God was brought right to them. And look at the joy. And they're bringing glory. The Word of the Lord. That verse is incredible. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. The missionary, that's us, who goes armed with great truths of Knowing predestination. You don't have to teach predestination. You don't have to preach irresistible grace. You don't have to preach... You get the Gospel. Do what Jesus did. Give them the law. They realize they break the law, then move on. Give them the good news. But if they can't get past the law and they still think they're good enough, or they're bad enough and God can't do anything to them, they need the, the healing oil. The balm of Gilead, don't they? They need that to be put in their their wounds. God will do for others what He did to Lydia, what He did to these Gentiles. The Lord opens their heart. That's just sensational. There are true truths. With men, it's impossible. And with God, all things are possible. David Brainerd wrote a missionary journal and a diary that he kept. He probably uh, did as much fire to cause a cause of missions as any any book beside the Bible. He lived for two things. He said, I live for my own sanctification and the ingathering of God's elect. I think he lived to be twenty eight years old. Burned out for the Lord. Gave the gospel to the Indians. 
because he was amongst them, he caught a disease. He died. Let me tell you, gets heavenly reward. That's what the next section's about. And uh, only take a few minutes to get this. Twenty-eight through thirty-one. That's Peter speaking up. It's okay. This is Peter. Peter began to say to him, Behold! (laughs) Behold! Wow, Jesus uses that word a lot. We have left everything and followed you. But Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but they have receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. <laughs> what do we get? What do we get? That's what Peter is saying. Okay, hey, the rich young ruler, he left. We're still here. What about us? What do we get? Turn to Matthew 19. I really uh, think it's almost a negative thing, but you know what? I'm not going to even say that because I don't know for sure. Knowing even how it goes, I think Jesus says, hey, we just need to just move on here. Uh, He's rebuked Peter enough. I don't know. Uh, In... in, uh, Matthew 19.27, Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything, followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Who is He speaking to? The Apostle. What kind of position are they going to be put in? They're going to be over people that were had lifted high. Maybe they're such. And then he goes on, everyone who has left houses, brothers and sisters. Matthew um, puts in uh, an extra verse and he was inspired too, so that's good. We get a little more attention here on that sense. Uh, what's in it for us? I don't know. Is it very crass, practical here? We do know that the apostles are always arguing among uh, who's the greatest in the kingdom. What do we get out of this? Okay, hey, we're the poor. Uh, what does our our spiritual riches look like here? You know, uh, we've left it all. You know, he's right. They did. They did leave it all. Jesus called them. He said, "Hey, leave that stuff there. Come on." And they did. They left their business. They left their father. They left a you know a lucrative business if you're a tax collector. What do we get out of this? We did what he he wouldn't do. That's true. What do we get out of it? Well, Jesus says, if you're deprived of your earthly family, you're serving Christ. I'll make it up to you a hundredfold. Probably more than that. Your spiritual family he mentions brothers, sisters, mother, father, children. Our family is one of our most important things we have, right? I mean, we—if you still have mother and father, they are important. We're important. We know that. Uh, grandparents. All that, that great big family, extended family goes out, cousins and such. They're important. But what he's saying is even if they're gone, you've lost them. Maybe you lost them prematurely or whatever. He says, I want to tell you something. If that was because you, especially if you left them because of Christ, there can be other things. He says, you know, you're in the family of God. The family of God starts right here among us. This is even more important than our earthly family. You say, how can you say that? No, this is the most important family you'll ever have. Because in heaven, we will not have... um, I mean, obviously there will be mother and father. We won't be married. Actually, our family is each and every one of us. There's a need for the family now, and it is important. It's a great thing. Let's let's elevate it to, to where it needs to be. 
you know, focus on that family, but yet we go a step much higher. The family you have right here is eternal. Some of your family are not saved. Maybe they all are. I doubt it. I don't know of hardly anybody who has everybody in their family. Speaking of aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters, that extended part that is so great. You know, family reunions are really cool and everything, you know, but you know that most of them or a lot of them or maybe some of them or maybe a few are not saved, right? And and you lose them and they're important. And God is saying, listen, if you've, you've lost them, I want to tell you, I've got something much better. And I want to tell you, you really haven't sacrificed anything because when you look at this eternal matter, uh, even in this life, in the present age, you have the best family you can possibly have. Other Christians. But you don't sacrifice anything. You know what? Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, 50 years of missionary labor, after 50 years, he says, I never made a sacrifice. You say, why? I've sacrificed this and that for the church, for Christ. I've sacrificed this and that. No, you haven't sacrificed anything. Christ is the sacrifice. We ought to be jumping with joy with what He has given us to be able to serve Him and His people and he restores everything a hundredfold. Look, he says, Hey, Peter, I know, you, le- you left that. You left everything. Really, you know, you have no idea. There's no one. There's no one. I'm telling you, there's not one person who's left his house and brothers and sisters and mother and father and children, farms. I think he says in, is it in Matthew or Mark here. Get all that in there. Everything. Whatever you own for my sake, that you will not receive a hundred times as much. Don't be too concerned. You really aren't giving up that much. You know what? On the the day of Pentecost, a lot of people who were there from other countries, they didn't leave Jerusalem. They just stayed there. There were people that took them into their homes. And all of a sudden, they were their brothers and sisters. They were their mother and father and such. All these pilgrims. And he says, as far as the regeneration is concerned, back there in Matthew, he said, what's that all about? Why did Jesus say that? And then uh, it's not in Mark. Um, I don't know why one is there and one's not, but I know Matthew presents a kingdom. He says, you're going to sit upon the twelve thrones. We're going to be sitting on thrones, but the apostles have a position on the twelve thrones of Israel. Uh, did you see that in Matthew 19.28? Uh, he's talking about the regeneration. He's not talking about being born again there, a regeneration that we think of there. He's talking to Peter and the apostles. He said, you think you've lost something? I'm going to tell you, I'm going to elevate you on thrones. Yeah, it says right there in 1928. What's going on there? Truly. I'm not kidding you. You who have followed me, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, when ultimately that time will happen, we'll see that you shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Beautiful. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, speaks of a regeneration. What kind of regeneration is that? Well, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That's a born-again thing. That's a regeneration, born-again. Matthew is speaking of a different time that would be found in Acts 3.21. So there's your regenerations. But you read in context and you read early in the history of the church they taught about a regeneration. Acts 3.21 Whom heaven must receive talking about Christ, the appointed for you, until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient time. 
Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything. He says, he talks about that. But anyway, he says that Christ will come back. He's in heaven now. He's received there until the period of restoration of all things. A restoring. A regeneration of this earth. Glorified bodies. of bodies. He's talking about glory here. This is a staggering promise. What do we get? Well, right now we get a worldwide fellowship of believers that are in the kingdom of God that is invisible. One day we'll have the kingdom of God that will be visible. And in eternity we have eternal life. And Jim Elliott said this, it's true that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to keep what he cannot lose. And he says the first will be last and the last first. They're all arguing. You know, they've been arguing about who's the greatest, right? They always do that. And honestly, I don't have the time. If we were to look in Matthew 20 that follows up, or Matthew 19 immediately goes into the part where Jesus went out and got some workers at 6 o'clock in the morning, got some more at 9 o'clock, then at 12 o'clock, then at 3 o'clock, then the very last hour at 5 o'clock. They shut down at 6 o'clock. The ones got uh, got paid that worked from 5 to 6, the very same amount that the ones that started early in the morning from 6 o'clock and worked all day. The first last the last verse. That's not fair. Yes, it is. He agreed upon each one of those. Jesus tells them what, what the, he agreed with those ones at 6 o'clock. Did I not tell you? And, and we both agreed that this is the amount that I'm going to pay you. What concern do you have of these other ones? You say, well, they ought to just be paid for that one hour they worked. That's not the way grace works. See, he goes against the grain of human thinking, doesn't he? It cuts across our grain and sometimes we read these scriptures and it can almost just turn us upside down. Might even make you mad sometimes. I'm sure the disciples were always, what? What is he saying? The rich man went away spiritually poor. If that's the way it stayed, he stayed poor forever. He says, but you poor men, you poor disciples, you, you stayed right here and you followed me. You're following me, and you will receive eternal riches. Closing it up, whoever desires truly to inherit the kingdom of God, you must be free from the dominance of pride, from confidence in your own goodness, your own religion, your own things that you draw from, and all the pleasures. Be willing to confess your sin, the ability, uh, the inability to, to please God, recognizing that, and esteeming Christ above every. Else, We sang that song, You're My Everything. (laughs) He is our everything. Abandoning it all. Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote a song. I will abandon it all for the sake of the call. Everything for Christ. Forgiveness of sins. The eternal promise. That's what I'm banking on. And I'm willing to give up whatever it is for that. To be willing. That's where God has put you in that place if that's where you are and realize I'm thankful for forgiveness. I'm thankful for the promises. Let's pray.